Thank you, Grace. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. For those of you who were here yesterday, you're obviously gluttons for punishment. Uh, welcome back. Uh, it's delighted. I'm delighted to be here. And Gleaves did not exaggerate. It feels very much like uh, a homecoming. So thank you for for making me feel so welcome. Um, we're going to talk about the Adamses, the other Adams family. Um, although, actually, by the time they're done, they may seem as gloomy as the, uh, <laughs> as the original. Um, you may all remember back in 2001, there were all of these uh, analogies made between the Bushes and the Adamses. You know, before the Bushes and the Kennedys and the Rockefellers and the Taps, there were the Adamses, the original and some might argue still uh, the most distinguished uh, dynasty in American politics. Um, anyone who watched Bill Clinton hand the baton uh, on Inauguration Day on to George W. Bush uh, might very well have contrasted the scene with exactly 200 years earlier when uh, John Adams refused to attend the inauguration of his former friend turned political rival Thomas Jefferson. Uh, for the years thereafter, uh, the first President Adams would nurse his grudges even as the second sought to avenge his father's much-abused name. Um, you also have probably uh, encountered the fact that uh, 41, as Washington shorthand refers to the first George Bush, routinely refers to his son as 43. It is also said that a justifiably proud father teasingly calls his son Quincy. Um, it is an analogy that has its limits. Uh, John Quincy Adams used to rise every morning with the sun to read Tacitus and Cicero. Enough said. Um, <laughs> uh, another, however, parallel People who think that today's politics are ugly and nasty and polarized, all of which is true, um, they really ought to go back in time. I don't know if it's consoling or maybe it's depressing to think that we haven't come any further in 200 years, but the campaign of 1796, the first Adams campaign, did little to encourage the friends of democracy. Long before the first negative spot hit the nation's airwaves, Character assassination was the order of the day, with Thomas Jefferson variously branded a coward, a better philosopher than statesman, and an infidel seduced by France and dusky Sally Hemings. Vice President Adams fared little better. His indiscreet writings about simple men and gentlemen placed in the worst possible light. Still more improbably, the self-righteous Yankee from Quincy got his own taste of sexual innuendo when gossips claimed that George Washington had dispatched American diplomats to France not to secure peace between the young republic and its wartime ally, but to procure a female quartet to gratify the lascivious desires of the president and his second-in-command. For once, Adams laughed off the slander, protesting that by keeping the lovely ladies for himself, the diplomat in question had cheated me out of my two. <laughs> the Washington presidency ended, of course, on the morning of March 4th, 1797. That morning, uh, Washington, who was a great master of political theater, uh, donned his best black velvet suit and walked 
to Congress Hall uh, for his uh, last act as president. Uh, he uh, very deliberately chose to dispense with elaborate coaches of state uh, polled by six milk-white horses. Uh, not so the president-elect, who arrived for his inauguration resplendent in a pearl-colored suit of native broadcloth set off by a dress sword and cockade hat. Now, it looked good on Washington. <laughs> it really didn't look good on Adams, um, who was a short, rather squat, I'll never forget, David. I once introduced David McCullough over at the Ford Museum, and he was talking about Adams as a uh, short, round, red-headed, Yankee, educated. <clears throat> anyway, I thought it was hitting dangerously close to home. Um, but he said nice things about him, so I suppose. But, but it's easy to laugh, but, but that illustrates in some, in some ways actually a serious point. No one knew how to be a president um, except to emulate George Washington. And the, uh, the tragedy in some ways of the Adams presidency isn't that he tried to dress like George Washington. Um, he kept George Washington's cabinet which was a really, really stupid thing to do. Um, and uh, ironically, misplaced deference was to prove Adams' undoing. Why? Well, first of all, these were people whose loyalty was to originally Washington, and for the most part now to Hamilton, not to John Adams. Hamilton is the wire puller behind the, behind the scenes who's pulling the strings um, really the boss of the Federalist Party, um, uh, a president in all but name, certainly in his own mind, and someone who did not like John Adams, did not respect John Adams. Uh, the feelings were returned with compound interest. Uh, remember, Adams famously referred to the illegitimate Hamilton as the bastard brat of a Scots peddler, um, and it went downhill from there. Um, that is very Adams, prickly, sometimes paranoid, bereft of small talk, and incapable of the white lie or meaningless compliment. John Adams is the modern political handler's nightmare. <laughs> I do not say when I was a politician, he exclaimed testily, for that I never was. Yet if one cannot imagine him taking a poll or listening to a spin doctor, it is not for lack of ambition. All his life, Adams thirsted for reputation while refusing to court the fickle gods of popularity. He is an American paradox, a revolutionary who feared the mob, a provincial who made the world and the world of ideas his home. And, you know, he was, he was the original president of the Red Sox nation. Um, he, he, he said, in all seriousness, uh, as an adult, that Harvard and our Boston town meetings have set the world in motion. A lot of people in Boston still feel that way. <clears throat> John Adams is a conservative who distrusted banks and loathed financial speculators. He was a deeply spiritual figure who outgrew the frigid doctrines of John Calvin without ever forsaking the even harsher self-demands of a Puritan conscience. 
he, uh, before the end of his life, uh, believed quite seriously that Unitarianism uh, would one day be the national religion of the American people. At the age of 21, this is how he put it, quote, Upon common theaters, indeed, the applause of the audience is of more importance to the actor than their own approbation. But upon the stage of life, while conscience claps, let the world hiss. Doesn't sound like a modern politician. Adams put his legal career at risk by defending British redcoats who were charged with massacring five Bostonians outside the State House in March 1770, the famous Boston Massacre. Here is this young, politically ambitious lawyer who does an extraordinary thing. He puts his entire career, his entire reputation, on the line for the most unpopular of causes, defending the British lobsterbacks who were guilty for uh, gunning down five of his Boston neighbors. Um, more surprisingly, he won in the courtroom, which tells you something about Boston juries, um, at least then. Um, that did not prevent voters from sending him to the Massachusetts legislature, or Adams himself, characteristically, from lamenting that even as he took the oath of office, he was launched on the road to ruin and premature death. In one breath, he acknowledged his, quote, strong desire of distinction, while in the next, he verbally flagellated himself for the sin of pride. It is this habitual argument with himself, faithfully preserved in his diaries and correspondence, that makes John Adams the most human and, oddly, the most endearing of the founders. In his darker moods, he mixed self-pity with self-justification. Mausoleums, statues, monuments will never be erected to me, he lamented after the revolution. His peppery temperament made him a most undiplomatic diplomat. At the end of the war, Jefferson learned of his friend's appointment to the Peace Commission that was to negotiate a formal end to the conflict. He hates Franklin, said Jefferson. He hates Jay. He hates the French. He hates the English. To whom will he adhere? The answer, of course, was the United States. The only thing Adams loved as much as his family and his farm. Jefferson did not exaggerate when he said of his Yankee contemporary that he was, quote, as disillusioned, or rather as disinterested as the being who made him. Yet while Jefferson became, in effect, the nation's first political boss, Adams remained a party of one. Therein lies the challenge of understanding this most apolitical of men, whose entire life was spent in the political cockpit. I think it helps if we redefine. Don't think of John Adams as a politician. Think of him as a political scientist. It had been his lot in life, wrote Adams, to discover, quote, that men find ways to persuade themselves to believe any absurdity, to submit to any prostitution, rather than forego their wishes and desires. Their reason becomes at last an eloquent advocate on the side of their passions. And they bring themselves to believe that black is white, that vice is virtue, that folly is wisdom, and eternity a moment. That's a blunt assessment, but not altogether inaccurate. It was Adam's exhaustive study of his fellow men that prompted his belief in an executive, in a president, 
who would be strong enough, independent enough, and high-minded enough to protect the American experiment from those very traits, envy, greed, and the hunger for recognition that he perceived in himself as well as his fellow man. To Adams, the executive was the fulcrum, establishing a precarious balance between democracy and aristocracy, those dangerously dynamic forces represented in a popularly elected House and a Senate that was chosen by state legislators. More than a mediator, Adams' executive was a moral balance wheel, above politics, beyond faction, disdaining intrigue, a man of principle, not partisanship. In theory, exactly what we all think we want in a president, and in reality, exactly what that most political of offices cannot sustain. That is the kind of president Adams tried to be. He took office, typically, with little sense of joy. In his words, jealousies and rivalries have been my theme, and checks and balances are their antidotes till I am ashamed to repeat the words, he told his beloved Abigail, but they never steered me in such horrid forms as at present. Adams' presidency would have more than its share of anxieties, most of them stemming from French aggression and domestic turmoil caused by the prospect of war with America's one-time ally. Ten weeks into office, Adams does something courageous. He appears before Congress to waive the olive branch of negotiation, while simultaneously decrying the actions of France's directory in plundering hundreds of American vessels and refusing to even recognize an American minister. He asked James Madison, who was, of course, a friend of Thomas Jefferson, uh, as the, the parties are beginning to evolve. He asks Madison, in an act of national unity, will you go to France and negotiate a settlement as someone who enjoys the confidence of Jefferson uh, and the pro-French party? Uh, and Madison turns him down. So he sends a, a three-member uh, delegation uh, to Paris. They cool their heels for months for a very good reason, or a very bad reason, namely uh, the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, who was crooked as a dog's hind leg, um, had through his agents, he hadn't deigned to talk to the Americans himself, but um, his agents who were immortalized in diplomatic code as X, Y, and Z, he put a, quite simply, he put a price on peace with France. He put a price on talking to France. He put a price on most things. Uh, Talleyrand wanted a $10 million loan from the United States and a personal bribe of $240,000 to line his deep pockets. Then, and only then, would he consent to talk to the Americans. Well, you can imagine Adam's reaction. Shocked as he was, his initial instinct was not to exploit this for political gain. That wouldn't be John Adams. His instinct, in fact, was to treat this as a state secret. Uh, to keep it from getting out of control, if you will. But when the opposition, led by Jefferson, his own vice president, shrieked for his head, as well as for the concealed diplomatic record, Adams let them have it in more ways than one. Jefferson, for example, had regarded the president's latest message to Congress as, quote, insane. Publication of the insulting demands, the XYZ demands, 
did not change Jefferson's mind, but it did transform the mood of the country. As war fever swept the nation, Adams all of a sudden became popular, a rare condition for any Adams, and one that he was immediately distrustful of. A new march, Adams and Liberty, became part of the national soundtrack. The administration's program sailed literally through Congress. John Adams is today regarded as the father of the Navy for a very good reason. Uh, He established the Department of the Navy. Um, At the same time, an army of 10,000 regulars was authorized. He asked George Washington to come out of retirement to put on his uniform and to command this phantom army in this ghost war with France. The problem, of course, was... (laughs) Uh, you know, with two you get egg roll, with Washington you get Hamilton. Uh, Washington made it very clear that his acceptance of the president's invitation was conditioned on his, Washington's ability to choose his subordinates, not the president's. And in fact, this is 150 years before Harry Truman fires Douglas MacArthur uh, to demonstrate civilian superiority over the military. But no one was superior to George Washington. It is not Washington's finest hour. Uh, But the fact is Adams is simply not in a position. He doesn't have the strength. He doesn't have the credibility to tell Washington, I'm president, and I don't want uh, Hamilton within a country mile of the army. So Hamilton, of course, hungry for military glory, uh, the last thing Hamilton wants is a negotiated settlement with France. I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say Hamilton would have been perfectly happy to have a war in which he could, uh, again, burnish his his battlefield renown. So, you have the famous quasi-war with France. Adams was determined to keep it from turning into a shooting war. Uh, On the one hand, he had to deal with the jingos and the militarists um, Congress authorized a tripling of the, uh, of the regular army, but lawmakers shrank from any formal declaration of hostilities. So what does Adams do? He leaves town for four months in the summer of 1798. He leaves Philadelphia. He goes back to Quincy, to his firm. And, uh, and he had absolutely no intention of leaving it, Abigail was dangerously ill. In fact, it was thought for a while that she might not live. So he goes back to Quincy um, to care for her and also to get away from this bubbling cauldron of uh, war fever in Philadelphia. Now, in his absence, Congress adopted several harshly worded measures which historians are still debating. Uh, Were they like Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus, for example, during the Civil War, uh, wartime necessities, or were they, in fact, a domestic war on civil liberties? First came the Alien Act, which empowered the president on his own authority to expel any foreigner from American soil whom he viewed as a threat to public safety. On July 4th, ironically, Congress passed the Sedition Act, whose terms included fines of up to $2,000 and a jail term of as long as two years for any American convicted of publishing writings deemed, quote, false, scandalous, and malicious, or likely to undermine the government of the United States, its chief executive, or Congress. The former 
the Alien Act didn't come out of the blue. The fact is that there were already 30,000 French emigres on American soil, uh, and it was suspected that some of those might be taking their orders from the Directory in Paris. Uh, the Alien of uh, the Sedition Act was described by no less than John Quincy Adams as the falling of a spark into a powder keg. All of a sudden, his father had to deal not only with the prospect of war overseas, but virtual war here at home. Uh, And that's no exaggeration. One of the first explosions took the form of something called the Kentucky Resolutions, drafted by his own vice president, Thomas Jefferson, soon augmented by the Virginia Resolutions, drafted by James Madison. And basically what they said was this. As a state, we have the power to nullify any federal law with which we take exception that we believe to be unconstitutional. Uh, The fact is that Jefferson and Madison, without knowing it, had lit a fuse that would explode at Fort Sumter. They were making the case, the constitutional case, that people like John Calhoun would pick up later on, that states were part of a loose confederation. It wasn't a nation, it was a confederation, and states had an authority to override federal law. Well, you can imagine what Adams thought of that. Um, And all this while, he is in Quincy at the house called Peacefield, um, nursing Abigail. You can imagine how wrenching it was for the president the moment he believed his wife out of imminent danger he returned to a capital awash in partisan conflict, much of it within his own Federalist Party. This is what he wrote to Abigail in Quincy. You and I seem to arrive prematurely at the age when there is no pleasure. Certainly there was scant pleasure to be found around the Adams cabinet table, most of whose members were taking their orders from Alexander Hamilton and undercutting the president. His policy toward France and the warmongers in his own administration turned conventional wisdom on its head. At a time of maximum danger to this raw, powerless infant of a republic, the man who critics called emotionally unbalanced proved to be extraordinarily balanced. For once, his famed stubbornness rose to the level of statesmanship. As he resisted the pro-war faction, headed by his own Secretary of State, a man named Timothy Pickering, who was little more than Hamilton's mouthpiece. The President was equally disdainful of what a later generation would call the Blame America first crowd of French sympathizers, for whom no amount of provocation could could justify a resort to arms. While all about him were losing their heads in Paris as well as Philadelphia, Adams kept his. When a chastened Talleyrand finally signaled a willingness to receive an American minister, Adams promptly submitted the name of a, of a Federalist candidate, um, but someone who was not, I repeat, not acceptable to Alexander Hamilton. When the Hamiltonians came to him uh, denouncing his choice, he basically called their bluff. He said, fine, if you don't like my choice, I'll resign, <clears throat> and Thomas Jefferson can be president. Uh, they need us to say, pipe down. 
Um, Adams then went before Congress in February 1799 in a message of four sentences and said that he was ready to take chances for peace. Long afterward, asked to provide a fitting epitaph for his career of public service, Adams suggested, here lies John Adams, who took upon himself the responsibility of peace with France in the year 1800. Now, the Bible tells us that the peacemaker is blessed. It says nothing about him being politically popular. The fact is, Adams' action opened a breach in his party that was never healed. His uh, reward for avoiding war with France was defeat at the polls in 1800. Political wounds were exacerbated by personal tragedies. Even as his loss to Thomas Jefferson was confirmed, Adams learned of the death of his alcoholic second son, Charles. My little bark has been overset in a squall of thunder and lightning and hail, attended with the strong smell of sulfur, wrote the outgoing president. Be not concerned for me. I feel my shoulders relieved from a burden. The short remainder of my days will be the happiest of my life. Well, the short remainder of his days turned out to be 25 years. And by and large, they were the happiest of his life, although it took a while for Adams, as for most former presidents, especially defeated former presidents, to regain his equilibrium. In the immediate aftermath of his defeat, for example, he declared that were he to live his life over again, quote, I would be a shoemaker rather than an American statesman. His bitterness was short-lived. Two weeks after he entered into involuntary retirement, the elder statesman professed delight at discovering a hundred loads of fertilizing seaweed in his backyard. On reflection, wrote Adams, he had made a good exchange of honors and virtues for manure. (laughs) In old age, he achieved a measure of wisdom, even tranquility, or it passed for tranquility for Adams. In the last week of his life, a small delegation of his Quincy neighbors called on the ancient statesman, 90 years old, in his second floor library at Peacefield. The house was named Peacefield for Adams' pursuit of peace with France. They encountered a palsied, toothless, half-blind figure, in his own words, ready to go forward and meet his destiny. John Adams did not rise from his favorite armchair to greet his visitors. Yet he more than rose to the occasion when they asked him for a statement to be read at the town's upcoming celebration commemorating 50 years to the day since he and Jefferson and the other patriots of Philadelphia declared a patchwork quilt of colonies a sovereign nation. I will give you, said the old man in a firm voice, independence forever. His holiday toast might serve as his real epitaph, for Adams had achieved independence long before his nation did. He did as much as anyone to forge a workable government, refute the cynics who questioned the durability of popular institutions, and keep the ship of state from foundering on the rocks of homegrown faction and foreign war. What Washington knew by instinct, and Adams learned through bitter experience, is that virtue, though admirable, is not by itself sufficient to govern a nation. That was a lesson that would be reiterated with the second Adams, 
who is, if anything, even more remarkable than his father. Um, how many of you saw the Steven Spielberg movie Amistad? Well, okay, I'm impressed. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. One of the sort of sub-themes of these talks is how presidential reputations get formed and reformed. Uh, they bounce around like corn in a popper. And for a very long time, the conventional wisdom was, that, you know, history is a zero-sum game. So Andrew Jackson is a great president. John Quincy Adams is a disaster as a president. Guess what? Then come the 1960s, and whole groups of people who used to be marginalized or left out of the history books are suddenly being reconsidered. Uh, African Americans, women, Native Americans, all of whom had a beef with Andrew Jackson. Uh, and, and by contrast, all of whom uh, have reason to be grateful for John Quincy Adams. So you begin to see Jackson slip, and Adams sort of crept up the list, and then came Steven Spielberg's movie. And I tell you, it's done more than anything else. There was a, the, the, the polling company Rasmussen recently did a fascinating exercise. They went out and they polled the American people favorable, unfavorable ratings of every president. Well, you kind of wonder what the people thought about William Henry Harrison. Uh, there's not really much to think about. But um, it's very interesting. John Adams, I think with help from David McCullough, uh, reported a 73% favorable rating. But what's remarkable is his son, who's much more obscure and traditionally viewed by, uh, by historians as, as a real a failed president, for reasons we'll get into. It was very interesting. John Quincy Adams had a 59% favorable rating, but only a 7% unfavorable rating, which is extraordinary because in his lifetime, those numbers probably could have been reversed. Um, as a boy, he had witnessed the Battle of Bunker Hill. His mother, the remarkable Abigail, took him up on a hillside to show him the battle raging across Massachusetts Bay uh, as the town of Charlestown and Bunker Hill were set on fire. His diplomatic career began when he was 14 years old, when he served as secretary to Francis Dana, who was the American minister to Russia. On his own, he filled diplomatic positions in the Netherlands, Great Britain, and Prussia before returning to Russia as minister in his own right. He was a Massachusetts state legislator, a United States senator, chairman of the American delegation that negotiated the end of the War of 1812, and oh yes, he was a professor of rhetoric at Harvard. He had idolized Washington firsthand. He'd enjoyed the company of Jefferson. He'd crossed swords with Napoleon, Wellington, Talleyrand and Tsar Alexander I. An English diplomat who had the misfortune to sit across from Adams at a negotiating table called him a bulldog among spaniels. <laughs> Adams understood what he meant. In his own diary, he confided, I was not formed to shine in company. I am a man of reserved, cold, austere, and forbidding manners. My political adversaries say, a gloomy misanthrope and my personal enemies, an unsocial savage. In fact, Adams was not dyspeptic, but depressed. 
his lifelong feelings of inadequacy implanted early by a demanding mother who could notify her 11-year-old son that, quote, Dear as you are to me, I had much rather you should have found your grave in the ocean you have crossed or any untimely death crop you in your infant years rather than see you an immoral profligate or a graceless child. That's the Puritan outlook. For good measure, Abigail Adams enjoined her son to keep a strict guard upon himself, quote, or the odious monster will soon lose its terror by becoming familiar to you. John Quincy would spend a lifetime grappling with the monster of his own ambition. The struggle produced America's finest diplomat, one of her least politically gifted chief executives, an indifferent poet who was forever bemoaning his choice of politics over literature, a classically educated street brawler who rose each morning before the sun, read a chapter of the Bible, and as I said, complained that his official duties deprived him of his old friends Cicero and Tacitus. Unprepossessing in appearance of average height, he possessed intellectual gifts that were anything but average. He spoke seven languages. As a scholar, he could write English with one hand and translate Greek with the other. His energy was legendary. The British minister in Washington, a man named Stratford Canning, described his American counterpart's habit of rising before dawn every day, then donning a black cap, green goggles, and nothing else, before swimming 90 minutes in the Potomac. Being in Adams, he inevitably swam against the tide. <laughs> Indeed, there is a true and wonderful story. If you think the media today hound presidents, there's a true story about a, a lady journalist who uh, managed to get an interview with President Adams uh, by the simple expedient of following him to the river and sitting on his clothes. <laughs> uh, James Monroe, about who we'll be talking a little bit later in the week, uh, who was president when Adams was Secretary of State, uh, James Monroe was above party, or so he saw himself you know, in the air of good feeling. Adams, like his father, was very much a party of one. Quote, I would sooner turn scavenger and earn my living by cleaning away the filth of the streets than plunge into this bottomless filth of faction. Ralph Waldo Emerson did not exaggerate when he said that his fellow Bay Stater was no literary gentleman, but a bruiser who never missed a good fight and did not hesitate to start one. Quote, he is an old roué, said Emerson, who cannot live on slops, but must have sulfuric acid in his tea. Whatever his other failings, John Quincy Adams never thought small. Working in tandem with Monroe as Secretary of State, he pursued a continental diplomacy. He took an aggressive approach to old world powers that encroached on the boundaries of the United States. <clears throat> After Andrew Jackson seized Pensacola in Spanish Florida along the way, executing two British subjects, as was his wont, deposing the Spanish governor, as was his habit, and bringing his country to the brink of war with England, as was his pleasure, most members of the cabinet wanted the aggressive Tennessean punished, not least of all because they feared him as a potential rival for the White House in 1824. 
Interesting for what happens later on, the one person who took a different point of view was John Quincy Adams, a continental view. Whatever he might think of the general's military tactics, as a diplomat he was grateful for the chance to negotiate from a position of strength. So on Washington's birthday, 1819, Adams and the Spanish minister in Washington sat down to sign their names to a treaty extending American sovereignty over Florida for the bargain price of $5 million. The same document canceled all Spanish claims to Oregon and settled the boundary between the United States and Mexico. This and other diplomatic triumphs were achieved at an astonishingly modest cost. The State Department in Adams' day numbered eight clerks. The Secretary personally reviewed all dispatches to and from his foreign diplomats. He conducted a vast correspondence in his own hand. In his spare time, he researched and wrote an erudite report on weights and measures that even his father found impenetrable. As a boy, he had imbibed from his remarkable mother a hatred for slavery. Slavery, he said, is the great and foul stain on the North American Union. And remember, about this time, 1820, there's a debate over slavery, and the Missouri Compromise is passed to try to sweep the issue under the rug. As Congress wrangled over Missouri, so did Adams and the rest of Monroe's cabinet. Adams defended the right of legislators to exclude slavery from the territories. He argued this proposition with Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, a South Carolinian who made clear his belief that justice was for whites only. Calhoun distinguished between manual labor, which he reserved exclusively for slaves, and farm or mechanical labor suitable for members of his own race. Adams wasn't by. As for Southerners like Calhoun, he said, the Missouri question, quote, has betrayed the secret of their souls. In the abstract, they admit that slavery is an evil. But when probed to the quick upon it, they look down upon the simplicity of a Yankee's manners because he has no habits of overbearing like theirs and cannot treat Negroes like dogs. Among the evils of slavery, wrote Adams, was that it, quote, establishes false estimates of virtue and vice. But what can be more false and heartless than this doctrine which makes the first and holiest rights of humanity to depend upon the color of the skin. Well, an impolitic thing to say in 1820. In 1824, Adams was one of several members of the cabinet who decided they would very much like to succeed Monroe, being an Adams, of course. He couldn't run for the office. The office had to seek him out. As he said, if chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without my stir. This won't do, a friend told Mrs. Adams. Kings are made by politicians and newspapers. And the man who sits down waiting to be crowned, whether by chance or just right, will go bareheaded all his life. Adams struggled to keep his scruples and his self-respect as he climbed the greasy pole. He tried to promote his rivals out of the race by sending them on diplomatic missions out of the country. <laughs> he urged Calhoun to become ambassador to France. He thought Henry Clay should go abroad on an undefined mission 
perhaps to Colombia or Chile or Argentina. One day he asked Monroe if the president had thought of appointing Jackson to a foreign post. I have, replied Monroe, but I'm afraid he would get us into a quarrel. In the end, it wasn't a quarrel, but a quarrel healed that provided the electoral fireworks as voters chose Monroe's successor. Of course, in fact, they didn't really choose him at all. In a four-way race, Jackson came in first, Adams came in second, invoked the popular vote and the electoral vote. It wasn't even close. Henry Clay came in fourth and was eliminated. Well, we still don't know, and we will never know, if there was, in fact, a corrupt bargain, as the Jacksonians insisted. We do know that Adams offered Henry Clay the job of Secretary of State. Now, that may not sound like much today, but you have to remember, think back to the early republic. The route of succession was not through the vice presidency, Secretary of State. Um, Thomas Jefferson had been Secretary of State, James Madison was Secretary of State, Monroe was Secretary of State. So by 1824, it was assumed, certainly by Henry Clay, that if he became Secretary of State, he would be positioned to be Adams' successor. Um, shouts of corrupt bargain all but ground out the feeble cheers accorded Adams on his inaugural day. The new president spoke almost apologetically, acknowledging his minority status and begging the indulgence of his countrymen. And guess what? History repeated itself. Uh, repeating his father's error, Adams retained Monroe's entire cabinet, including members who were openly hostile uh, to his interests. John C. Calhoun was his vice president. He was already working for Jackson uh, in 1828. There was a dinner attended by the lordly Daniel Webster, and uh, a toast was proposed to the beleaguered man in the White House. To President Adams, may he strike confusion through his foes to which Webster chimed in, as he already has done to his friends. <laughs> With his unerring distinct for uh, what was politically unpopular, Adams raised taxes, or tried to, in yet another defining moment that makes him anything but a precursor to the Bush restoration. With a boldness that would make the most ardent New Dealer blush, in his first message to Congress, Adams called for a breathtaking program of government expansion for what we call internal improvements or infrastructure. He wanted federally funded roads and canals. He wanted a national university in Washington, D.C., paid for with taxpayer dollars. He wanted to fund scientific expeditions, a national astronomical observatory, uh, what he memorably called a lighthouse of the sky. Henry Clay warned him that his planned economy was far in advance of public thinking, but Adams refused to trim his sails. Quote, the great object of civil government, he declared, is the improvement of those who are parties to the social compact. Now, that sounds commonplace today, perhaps objectionable, uh, particularly to libertarians, but in the 1820s it was shockingly at odds with the Jeffersonian or libertarian notion that the best government is the least government. More to the point, it was a gross misreading of Adams' mandate, such as it was. What Adams never really understood was he had to, he had to gain legitimacy. In his case, it wasn't enough to take the oath of office or to live in the White House uh, sanctioned by his father and Jefferson and Madison 
Um, he had to make the number one objective of his administration um, winning political legitimacy, overcoming the circumstances under which he became president. Um, and that he never even attempted. There are other differences between the second Adams and the second Bush. Uh, I think we all know George W. Bush harbors a profound distrust for, for the Ivy League and those he remembers as snobs at Yale. Uh, needless to say, for Adams, New England uh, was only, uh, his affection for New England was only slightly mitigated by his relentlessly critical Puritan conscience. Uh, and then there was his long-suffering wife, Louisa. Um, impress your friends, the footnote, she's the only first lady not born in the United States. She was born in England. Um, a, a remarkable woman who adored her father-in-law, but who never got along with Abigail. Um, John Quincy Adams may have been the, uh, the most cerebral of politicians. Now, he was not the most sensitive of husbands. Um, when Louisa um, lost a child uh, in childbirth, his response was to give her a book on diseases of the mind. Um, Laura Bush wants us to read books. Louisa Adams wrote one, an unpublished memoir that she poignantly entitled The Adventures of a Nobody. Poor Mrs. Adams was driven by an unfeeling capital to take refuge in the most alluring of narcotics, chocolate. Um, that's right, she was a confirmed chocoholic. There are wonderful letters that Louisa Catherine Adams wrote that have survived to this day, uh, where she's in the White House, uh, stretched out on a divan, um, writing these letters extolling the uh, medicinal qualities of fudge. Um, <laughs> I've often thought, probably being married to the sourest man in Washington, uh, she took her sweets wherever she, uh, wherever she could find them. Um, George W. Bush may be no orator, but he is a veritable Demosthenes compared to John Quincy Adams, who gave exactly one public speech during his four years in the White House. While uh, George W. bestows nicknames on apparently everyone with whom he comes in contact, uh, JQA bestowed epithets on enemies real and imagined. He reserved a special place in hell for journalists. In his words, a reporter is, quote, a sort of assassin who sits with loaded blunderbuss at the corners of streets and fires them off for sport at any passenger he selects. Adams sought to build on uh, his predecessor's pugnacious foreign policy only to see his old nemesis Great Britain fishing in troubled waters off Latin America. He wanted to make America a world factor, not necessarily a world power, above all a moral power. He wanted to embrace the wave of independence that was uh, overtaking uh, Spanish colonies in Latin America. He wanted to send an American representative to the first hemispheric conference ever held uh, in Panama. Um, Congress thwarted his desire to do so. Southerners took violent exception to the merest suggestion of U.S. support or recognition of Haiti as an independent black republic. They were no more favorably inclined toward Adams' relatively benign policies concerning the Creek Indians of Georgia, who were soon to be disposed of their lands by the old Indian fighter Andrew Jackson. On July 4, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, 
The president's father died in Quincy, Massachusetts, a few hours after Thomas Jefferson breathed his last at Monticello. Adams, all but overwhelmed by grief, went home to Quincy. He joined his father's church for the first time, and he resolved to keep Peacefield, the family estate, much to the dismay of his wife. Louisa and John Quincy argued over money. He should remember the dismal example of Jefferson, she told him, dying in poverty while his neighbors passed the hat. That year, voters in the off-year elections decisively turned against his administration. The opposition reclaimed both houses of Congress. The Adams presidency degenerated into a train wreck of embarrassments. The man above party was a man without a party. He was overwhelmingly defeated for a second term after a scandalous campaign, probably the nastiest in American history. Uh, Remember Andrew Jackson famously had uh, um, married a woman named Rachel uh, who had divorced her first husband, Mary Jackson, only to discover the paperwork had never been completed. And um, in the 1828 campaign, Adams supporters uh, brought this to light. The president himself was uninvolved, but um, uh, it was a very ugly campaign on both sides. Um, Adams was criticized by the Jacksonians for defiling the White House by uh, purchasing a billiard table with uh, public funds, um, by traveling on the Sabbath, and therefore profaning uh, religion. Uh, He was even accused, while minister to Russia, of having been a pimp for the Tsar. Um, In any event, Jackson won uh, overwhelmingly. Adams wrote, The sun of my political life sets in the deepest gloom. Then within weeks, history repeated itself yet again. Within weeks of leaving the White House, his alcoholic son, George Washington Adams. Can you imagine the burden of being named George Washington Adams in that household? George Washington Adams leapt to his death from a steamboat off Long Island. For years, the old man nagged and bullied his three sons, driving them on to meet his perfectionist standards. One hour of the morning lamp is better than three of the evening taper, he reminded anyone who would listen, adding for emphasis, genius is the child of toil. To which his son Charles pointed out that after rising at five, a vigorous round of exercise and 12 hours of business, it was not uncommon for his father to fall asleep at the dinner table. John Quincy went on dispensing advice. He could not break the habits of a lifetime, overriding family protest, above all from Louisa. They had knockdown, drag-out fights. In 1831, John Quincy could not resist the magnetic pull of politics. He ran for the House of Representatives. He's the only time in American history that a former president of the United States would deign to enter the lower house of Congress. Um, For the next 17 years, he represented his Massachusetts district, uh, personifying the unionist cause on the floor of the House of Representatives, denouncing slavery, and insisting on the right of every American citizen to petition his government. It is hard to believe, but it is an indication of how intense emotions were uh, in those years before the Civil War, that the very act of sending a petition to Congress protesting slavery 
calling for its abolition, uh, was outlawed by Congress. I mean, blatantly unconstitutional. One lonely voice stood up, uh, refusing to be gagged, and that was, of course, John Quincy Adams. He would not be silenced. Year after year, he protested the gag rule as an infringement on basic liberty. Southerners called him the madman from Massachusetts. Admirers called him old man eloquent. 77 years old, when the rule was at last repealed, he remained as harshly self-critical as ever. A few days before his death, he wrote in his diary, I should have been one of the greatest benefactors of my country, but the conceptive power of mine was conferred upon me by my maker, and I have not improved the scanty portion of his gifts as I might and ought to have done. The words are the words of John Quincy, but the voice is the voice of Abigail. On February 12, 1848, he collapsed at his desk on the floor of the house. From there, he was carried to the Speaker's office, where he died two days later. Now, legend is that his last words were, this is the last of earth, I am content. But I don't believe it for a moment, because John Quincy Adams was never content. And I cannot imagine that that's how he would wish to go out. It was left to an old Jacksonian, Thomas Hart Benton, to deliver the most suitable benediction on Adams, the political heir of John of George Washington. Uh, this is a parallel. George W. Bush is not his father's son politically. He's Ronald Reagan's son politically. John Quincy Adams was not his father's son politically. He was George Washington's son whose lonely defiance of popular opinion would one day earn him a chapter in Profiles in Courage, the work of another Massachusetts congressman and president named John F. Kennedy. This is what Benton said, Where could death have found him but at the post of duty? It was an epitaph even an Adams could appreciate. Thank you very much. And I know we've got some mics here, so you know, we've got a few minutes. And uh, if you've got questions, comments, observations, anything, sing out. Oh, come on. Yeah. I have a question about the Kentucky and Virginia resolves. Um, were they ever... Were they enacted in law? Yeah, yeah. The, the two the state legislatures enacted them. Okay. So what they were were basically a, a shot across the bow. And um, but you know that's pretty serious, particularly in this uh, supercharged atmosphere of the time. Um, and as I say, they would be referred to later on by people like Calhoun and others. But um, if they were law, why? There's no way of enforcing them. And, and, and events superseded them. Uh, the fact that Adams didn't go to war with France, uh, that he, in effect, sort of pricked the balloon um, before it got out of control. So gradually emotions, you know. And, and of course, uh, within a year, Jefferson was being elected president. So there was no longer, you know, what Jefferson called the Revolution of 1800. 
uh, was in no small measure inspired by those resolutions. Yeah. I'm just wondering um, why you made this statement, just to clarify a little bit, uh, that the president right now is more like with Reagan than he was with his father. I don't, again, just get connections. Right. Um, let me distinguish between how he sees himself and how maybe others may see him. But uh, that's an important distinction. But there is no doubt that when George W. Bush came to Washington, he saw himself very much as someone uh, who wanted to carry out Ronald Reagan's agenda. Um, more than that, he saw himself as someone who didn't want to repeat what he saw as the mistakes of his father. What were they? Um, ironically, they are what many historians credit his father uh, with uh, recalling his read, read my lips, no new taxes pledge. There was a sense that, that, the Bush, that the first Bush presidency foundered on the fact that they retracted that pledge. Uh, I think you can make a case that it was a statesmanlike and courageous uh, decision, unpopular at the time, and but in retrospect, probably the, um, the genesis of the enormous economic boom that uh, took place throughout the 90s. But there's no doubt that the first Bush presidency was haunted by concern about the right wing of the Republican Party, um, keeping, keeping them close, and that is something, um, uh, that cautionary lesson, if you will, is something that came back and arguably defined the second Bush presidency. Uh, certainly if you look at people like Karl Rove and the amount of attention that was uh, showered on the base, uh, arguably to the detriment of the long-term success of the administration, those were all seen as lessons learned from the perceived errors of the first Bush presidency. Ronald Reagan, the first George Bush, I think was seen by many as a hybrid, a man as much of Kenny Bunkport as of Texas, uh, someone who was equally comfortable in the old Eastern establishment as he was with Midland, Texas oil men. The son didn't want anyone ever making the mistake of thinking that just because he went to Yale, he had any truck with that crowd. He was a Westerner, uh, very much in the Reagan tradition. Now, it's ironic in lieu of what has happened. I mean, but it goes to the law of unintended consequences. Presidents uh, come to Washington hoping to carry out an agenda, and they often find themselves as much at the mercy of events as controlling events. But I think there's no doubt culturally, temperamentally, and politically that George W. Bush looks to Ronald Reagan as his presidential role model more than he does to his father. Yeah? Politics makes strange bedfellows for politics. Bedfellows make strange politics. But enough of the 2008 election. <laughs> the, the friendship between uh, Jefferson and Adams 
It did, you know, and it's it's a wonderful chapter in the story. They had been great friends, remember. And in fact, uh, the, Abigail had uh, raised Jefferson's younger daughter, um, you know, in in, uh, in England. And um, they were very, very close. And then, of course, politics drove them apart. Um, and then in 1812, a mutual friend, a Philadelphia doctor named Benjamin Rush, uh, who thought it was just a shame that these two great patriots um, might, you know, never reconcile, took it upon himself to set that in motion. And, of course, Adams being Adams, you know, he wrote two or three times as many letters in the famous correspondence as Jefferson. He, he remarkable thing about Adams is he never, he, he never got old intellectually. He, he retained this extraordinarily youthful curiosity and, and, a, and a kind of exuberance. Um, a much, a very bouncy kind of figure. You read his, his, his letters and his, his, he, his ideas are spilling out onto the page. Um, he, he barely can get them out. And um, Jefferson, of course, is much cooler, more reserved. Um, so it's this wonderful kind of opposites attracting uh, sort of relationship. And um, Adam said at one point to Jefferson, um, we must not die without understanding each other. And I think that's how he saw the correspondence. And they were reconciled. And Jefferson congratulated him on his son's becoming president. Remember, he, you know, uh, the last two years of his life coincided with, with his son's presidency. I mean, a remarkable turn of events. And, um, and then, of course, they are, they are sealed forever by the extraordinary accident of dying on the same day. And Abigail was also reconciled. It took her a little longer. Often, as is the case, wives hold grudges longer. Uh, political wives, you know, hold grudges longer than their husbands. Their husbands don't have the luxury, you know. They have to be pragmatic and make deals and pretend at least not to hold a grudge. So their wives have the luxury of being honest. Um, but Abigail, it, it took a while, but Abigail was also reconciled to Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is genuine. I mean, I think it's it's a testament to both men, in some ways, particularly to Bush forty one, because you know it's it's a friendship being constantly tested by understandable the criticisms that. You know, both Clintons are making of his son. I mean, it's it's a remarkably uh, you know it's a fascinating relationship. But you're right. I mean, the uh, the Adams Jefferson friendship um, was the first in a series. And later this week we'll be talking about Hoover and Truman, which is a you know very little known uh, and quite moving actually story. Uh, and then of course President Ford and Jimmy Carter became very good friends. I think one of the things that brought them together was uh, Ronald Reagan. You can interpret that as you will. Uh, <laughs> one more? Anyone? Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was uh, invaluable. Uh, big, again, he's he not a natural diplomat. Um, but he was, um, first of all, <laughs> Unglamorous, but 
absolutely essential to the revolution. Um, he, he was sent to Europe to basically beg, borrow, cajole loans um, in the Netherlands um, with which to finance the war and, um, and also to try to help facilitate a formal alliance and to build on Franklin's work in, in, uh, in Paris. He, um, he never felt at home in France. His Puritan conscience was shocked by the way the women dressed or didn't dress, as he describes it. Um, and he was simply too blunt. Uh, you can't imagine John Adams fitting into a Parisian salon. I mean, it was just not, not his milieu. Um, but he succeeded with the Dutch. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then, of course, later, in the great irony of ironies, you know, he would be the first American ambassador to the court of St. James. And there's this remarkable scene where, you know, he, he is introduced to King George III, which must have been you know, difficult for both men. And, and each of them carried it off uh, like a pro. Um, and um, it's a very sort of heartwarming sequel to the war. Anyway, thank you very much. We'll hopefully see you this afternoon.